welcome to the first program of The Bard Window. This will be a podcast that will feature writers from all over the United Kingdom and worldwide as we develop the magazine. Now, this is unashamedly a celebration of the sound of words and imagery through the medium of poetry, prose and podcasting. And our hope is to offer a shop window to aspiring writers, pay homage to established work and explore how inspiration was realised and released. So at the end of the day, we hope to have a catalogue of uh, aspiring and established writers, poetry, prose, etc. on the website. We want it to be a destination where you can listen, relax and discover new writing. And we hope that many of the featured writers will have their own page on the site to add to over time. Now, the first guest, the programme's first main guest is Alma Bolton, who's a poet and a writer from the southwest of England. And some of her many achievements over the years and publications are reflected on the site notes and what will be her page. But right now, I'd just like to welcome you, Alma, and let the listeners hear your work your thoughts on poetry, and what some of your inspirations have been. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, David. And I'm very honoured to be your first guest as an emerging poet. Great. Lovely. So, I mean, tell me just a little bit before we kind of actually hear some of your poetry. How did poetry become important to you? Well, I think it always was. Uh, My father was a great reader of poetry and he used to read it aloud to us as children. So we got uh, things like Sir Patrick Spence and uh, The Boy Stood on the Burning Deck and other things like that. Ballads, dramatic ballads. And there was quite a lot of poetry in the house on the bookshelves. And I do remember taking a great liking to a, a little tiny book which was Edward Fitzgerald's translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. And I liked it for its smallness, but also once I got into it, I really loved the poetry. And I read it under the covers with a torch at night, as you do, and memorised quite a lot of the quatrains. So it started at a very early age. Now, as I said, a a lot of your kind of um, achievements and a lot of your publications, a lot of your history... We'll be having a text on on the site, but just one or two little things that I noticed from from what you've told me. I mean, I loved it about an established poet telling you you don't write prize-winning poems. And then, uh, so what happened? Well, I thought I'll show her. (laughs) I tried a bit harder. I polished them. I made them better. And uh, I think it was the following year or maybe the year after I was placed in the Bridport Prize which is quite a substantial and prestigious prize. I think, um, you know, that showed yes, them. Yes, and totally unexpected. Now, wh- one of the first poems of yours that we're going to hear is called Meantime, and that was your first prize-winning poem um, er- in the early 2000s. Yes. So w- would you like to just give a little bit of context to it before you read it? Uh, yes, it was written, of course, in the autumn, Um, at the time of the changing of the clocks and uh, I sent it into a a competition which I don't think runs anymore called the Barnet Arts Council 
competition, and it was judged by Fleur Adcock, whose work oh, yeah. I like very much. Yeah, yeah. So I sent it in, and I think it came third. And they had a nice little launch in a local theatre in Barnet, which I went to. Um, and okay. as usual, the, the, the travel expenses were far more than what I <laughs> won in prize money, but it was a lovely experience. Uh, it's often the case, isn't it? Okay, well, look, let's hear yes. it. It's called Meantime. The year is wearing thin, too thin to mend. Its bones show through the skin. We can't extend our lease on summertime. We can't pretend these few frost-bitten buds will blossom. They will not. The last roses will rot on withered shoots. The colours of decay that blaze amazingly on maple, dogwood, birch, cherry, horse chestnut, larch, will grind to slime under our boots before the week is out. Meantime, darkness is leaking in under the doors, through the keyhole and where the shutters meet, seeping between our eyelids and into our dreams. We wake distraught, mourning the loss of the light and what is dearer than light. One bright morning, months from now, we'll open our ears to the blackbird's song and we'll know that something's coming right. Meantime, we're stuck with it. Greenwich Meantime. Wow. Thank you. Uh, I think a lovely poem, actually. So I, I think we've got an opportunity here to hear several of your works. So I'm, I'm going to unashamedly ask you just to read the next one quite quickly before we talk a little bit more again. So I'd like to ask you to read the poem entitled After the Comet. And if you could just give a little bit of context to that one, please. Uh, yes, this was written while blackberry picking. And I just kind of went with the words and something really rather strange emerged. And uh, I like to imagine that this is a maybe an unconscious translation from a medieval Welsh poem. <laughs> right. Okay, after the comet then. The blackberries that year were few and bitter, quick to wither, spurned by birds. Hours we walked scouring the bushes for a small harvest to make midwinter wine. They who drank deepest, sickened, soonest. We who were left behind, hacked meagre graves in frozen ground, choked with bramble roots. Now, Andrew McMillan, who was the judge at the Cafe Writers' Competition 2016 that you obviously entered that for, quoted and said, after the comet felt like a new genre of poetry science fiction or post-apocalyptic, chillingly beautiful. Well, you couldn't get better kind of critique than that, could you? I was thrilled, yes. It was very good of him, very kind of him. Hmm. So, okay. I mean, I think at this point, I mean, a little bit to do with reading and how poetry is perceived, because there are... There are radio programs, there's plenty of poetry sites, there's poetry books are still incredibly popular and poetry groups do spring up all over. But 
You were part of the founding of the Fountain Poetry Groups, weren't you, about 20 years ago in the city of Wells in Somerset. Is, is that yes. right? Yes, that's right. It was it was Jane Williams and I who started it. Um, we used to meet in her flat and the numbers just got too big. So we went public and we met we've met in various pubs and cafes in and around Wells uh, until the lockdown, of course. But I hope we shall continue after the lockdown. Goodness knows where. Yeah, that certainly has um, changed the style of how poets meet, isn't it? Um, Absolutely, yes. Zoom has become the kind of the new, well, the new gathering. Right, well, look, um, at this point, um, we were going to read the next one of yours, but I think you wanted me to read one of mine. Well, yes, it? we've had two of mine, and I, I remember you reading at the Fountain Poets a lovely poem about the the mining at Charterhouse on Mendip. Could you I'll read that it. one, please? Yes, Thank yes, I you. shall. Okay. This is called The Charterhouse Mines. Blood washed and slate, the sky presided over one hour's walk to mark the mines. The mist formed veils and fading light as shadows slid from shafts and a banshee of an owl claimed the night. Long-headed shepherds, moor and marsh dreamers, prehistoric miners of Iberian descent, all colonize the hills and form a charter house of painted caves and white skulls. And then the mist moves like a turning worm. Hard and straight, the lines of Rome converge with convicts for the mining and theaters for the troops, smells of alchemy, arrogance and blood seep through villas whose owners rattle dice cups on mosaics where the wolf pack stood. The bleakest times of iron and mud-soaked wars let a merchant church command the shafts. Between the rage of foresters, the royal sword and the silver greed of bishops, the land wept lead without a word. Near cheddar streams as red as Waterloo soldiers, boys curled up and faded with seven years of life. In the swamp smell tunnels, through gruffy ground, lamps in a thousand tents vanished in the wind and left the owl in the mist the only sound. All quiet now, on the desolate hill, no noise, and silent graves washed away with the slurry. But their spirits pray in the heather bed, near the reeds where snipe prepare for sleep and the grassland as the rabbits lick the lead. Well, there we are. All right. Thank you, David. It's lovely to hear that again. Well, back to yes. Thank you for that. But back to you, you're the guest today. So now we're, we're going to have a listen to a poem called Chambered Cairn that, is it Coyness you pronounce it? I think it's probably Coyness, but I'm not sure of that. Okay, how did this one come about? Um, well, I my, my favorite part of the world is the Northern Isles and I have been to Orkney and Shetland several times. And one Sunday, I got on a ferry, uh, this was in Orkney, and um, I forgot where I was meaning to go, <laughs> so I got off at the wrong place, 
and I had a wonderful walk. It was a beautiful summer's day, um, and I found this chambered cairn, and it was it was just amazing. There was nobody else there at all, um, mm. and it spoke to me very strongly. I imagine quite ma sort of a magical experience, really. It's there's such yes. a his there's such a history out there. Yes, there is. And if you go to somewhere like um, Mineho, you get the guided tour and you learn a lot about it, but it's quite different being there alone in the dark with the um, the stones. Hmm. Right. Okay. So, chambered cairn at Coyness. Through a passage three feet high, on your knees, in the seething dark you enter. In the corbelled chamber's space, you uncoil and stand earthfast at the centre. White silence sings in your ears. On an inch of paper, you write the three runes of your name, bind it with hair and hide it in a crevice between the stones. Mm. Yes, you can certainly feel the experience, can't you? I mean, I can't imagine, well, I can, I can, I can try and imagine just how that felt to you, but I mean, it, it comes across really well. Thanks for that. Generally, how do you, I mean, how, how have you seen the poetry scene, as it were, over the last, say, 15 to 20 years since you started The Fountain Poets? I mean, has it changed? Is it growing? Is it is it still as kind of... Um, revered as ever, or is it actually coming into the daylight more? I think it's coming into the daylight more. A lot more people are writing. Hmm. Consequently, it's much more difficult to get published. <laughs> I had an email from a magazine editor this morning <laughs> apologising for his lateness in getting back to me on four poems that I sent him back in July last year, saying that he had... Um, I forget how many it was, but I worked out he had to read 60 poems a day, every day. Good grief. Yes, that's what I thought. And I think that would just put me off. I think it would be a kind of inoculation against poetry, and I really admire him for carrying on with it. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> on one hand, obviously, we hope to attract at the barred window lots of inspiration and lots of poets sort of um, looking to actually have their their their, their poet uh, their poetic kind of inspiration reflected here, but on the other hand, that just sounds a staggering amount of numbers actually. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, there has obviously been an exponential growth in self-publication, hasn't there? Yes, that's true. Um, you've done quite a bit yourself, haven't you? And the Fountain Poets, you've done three anthologies as far as I remember. Yes, yes, I have. And um, they haven't been <laughs> haven't been bestsellers, but I've, I think I've done 50, 50 copies of each one and they've all gone now. Um, hmm. So I was pleased about that. And, well, um, you know that anything else that we do on this site, we're, we're actually going to actually um, indicate how people can get a hold of it if they are published. So, I mean, you know, for the future, I think that's quite important to have another yes. kind of shop window. Yes, yes, that would be great. Okay. And in fact, I'm, I'm due to do another one this year. 
watch this space, all right? And we'll make sure, <laughs> yes. we, we shall make sure that it's on the site. Now, the next poem that I've got here of yours is, is a fascinating title. It's called Dreams in Upper Silesia. So how did that one come about? Well, I think it's self-explanatory when you hear the poem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's hear the poem first then. First night in a new place, says my Polish friend, whatever you dream will come true. I salvage scraps of colour from the night's flotsam. Emotional orange, complicated blue. Ah, now you had that published in the magazine, didn't you? Well, it's an online magazine. It's a, an American online magazine called mm. Right Hand Pointing, mm. which I like very much. Was it, I mean, what, what was Upper Silesia like? Uh, well, it, it's very different from England. Mm. It's, it's a very big landscape, not much agriculture in that part of Poland. Um, it was more, I think, mining and industry. Um, was it just your Polish friend that you were talking to, generally speaking, or was this to do with any kind of um, poetic this was, con she, contact? She, she lives, not really, she, she's a poet. She came to the Fountain Poets. Um, she and I went for a weekend to stay with her mum in um, Gliwice. And we went on a day trip to Krakow, which was absolutely wonderful. I would mm. recommend a day or a weekend there to anyone. It's fascinating. But anyway, when, when I settled down in the spare room, she said, you know, the first night you sleep in a new place, what you dream will come true. So I, I had high hopes and I just got these kind of jumbles of colour. So, and a uh, nice poem came out of it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really now kind of locking into your style and liking it even more. I've got to be honest, the ones that you've read so far. Um, I think, have we got time? Well, let's have another couple. Let's talk about Heart Lake. Now that you've got here is from Places of Poetry Anthology. That's just last year. Yeah? That's right, yes, yes. And so what prompted Heart Lake? What was the background to it? Uh, well, it's, it's one of the bus stops between Wells and Street. Mm -hmm. And at the time I wrote it, I was traveling on the bus every day to visit my aunt who was in a care home in Street and uh, she died not long after. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time on buses, uh, observing the other passengers and looking out of the window and noticing. Heart Lake then, let's have it. In all weathers, I've traveled this route across the levels and never known a bus to stop at Heart Lake Bridge. After much rain, Heart Lake River and the 12-foot Rhine spill over their banks and flood the fields. But today, the fields are dry, the sky clear with clouds heaped in the south like abandoned baggage. Flat pastures stretch to a low horizon. The only buildings in sight are farmhouse and barns. The bus stops and a man walks into the landscape, away from Hartlake Farm. Hmm. Very southwest of England, isn't it? Very descriptive. Yes. Yeah. When you hear other people 
reading poetry. We talk, we've talked about this a bit before in terms of style and, and how they actually present poetry. Do you think it's, it's changed much over the years how, if you like, the general public are exposed to poetry and, and how they actually experience it? Because my memory, I think I told you, was that it was a little bit stilted, a little bit kind of um, too grave and too formulaic and, uh, in the past. But maybe I just haven't experienced enough of it. I don't know. What, what, what's your thinking? I think you're right. I think you're right. Back in the 60s, there was a lot of very parsonical reading. Hmm. Um, very, uh, what, what was the word you used? Dirgy. Dirge. Dirge. It was like reading. a dirge. Yeah, it yes. was. Yeah. Yes. Um, but in the late 60s and the 70s, I was living in Liverpool and there was a very lively poetry scene there. Mm. So um, I, I was exposed to a much more lively style of reading. Well, I, yeah, I remember in London going round various poetry venues in the 70s. And uh, to be honest with you, yes, it was dirty. And, and I've got to admit it, when I went to the Poetry Society for some of the readings there, that's where I, I kind of got fell asleep almost. Um, but effectively, at the other end of the spectrum, I also found a lot of Americans came to the UK to, to read their poetry, it seemed at the time. And that was the absolute opposite extreme, which was just as difficult to get a hold of. And they were almost like the performance poetry, but like wild performance yes. poetry. You know, the, 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 the rhythms were absolutely in your face all the time. And, and I, I found that sometimes just as difficult. And I thought, is there no middle ground here? <laughs> I wonder you know. if you went to that event in the Albert Hall, the, the International Poetry Incarnation. No, I didn't. But that's well, something, immediately that obviously made you think of it. That was amazing. That was Ginsberg and Ferlinghetti and um, oh, right. that, that generation, the beat poets and some English poets too. And that certainly was an eye-opener. Yeah. Well, I can believe it. I mean, Ginsburg, I've actually seen, you know, recordings of him. But, I mean, effectively, I, I just couldn't believe it. The Americans were so... I mean, and I'd worked in America. I wasn't, like, immune. You know, I, I yeah, wasn't, like, yeah. sort of suddenly exposed to it. Okay. Anyway, look, there's some more of your poetry here. I want to hear this last one from you. Again, um called Song in a Time of Change. Now, this, you've said, is from Brittle Star magazine, and you wrote this, interestingly enough, to a tune by someone called Anna Silvera. Do you want to explain a bit about that? Yes, yes, I will. I heard Anna Silvera on Ian McMillan's programme, The Verb, on Radio 3, hmm. and I, I played it again and again on, on the um, BBC Sounds. And I just, I just love that song, and I love the, the tune and her words, of course. Um, and I found that this, this poem just kind of emerged as I sang her words to myself. And um, her, her song is about. It begins, "I carry these seeds in my mouth," which is a very startling mm -hmm. image. Mm. I hope that we can bring, and I know you're going to be part of things in the future here of the site as well, but I hope we can bring a real variety to the future here in terms of letting people experience 
all sorts of different genres, all sorts of different people, all age groups and experiences when we bring poetry to it. I think we talked before, didn't we, that it'd be nice some days to have a little bit of prose here and there as well, and also maybe children's poetry and, and perhaps even have a session where we have a, a haiku um, session of poetry in terms of the different sort of um, influences. But the main thing I just hope is that people will see the uh, barred window as a destination, as somewhere that they can tune into on a regular basis. We're going to put it out for everybody listening, probably monthly to start with. But if, as we suspect, it gets much pop more popular, I rather think we're going to make it fortnightly. And I've got quite a list of people already, very, very good poets, lining up to actually give us the benefit of their poetry. And I'll put a little bit in at the end about that. But for now, Emma Bolton, appreciated greatly. And thank you very much for being our first guest. Thank you, David, for inviting me. Well, thanks to Emma for a wonderful opening episode of Barred Window. When I started this project, I knew that there was always room for poetry and collecting good work from all over. It seemed an excellent idea. Poets out there who are either very established or never seen the light of day are all welcome. Just register for free. And after a check that no one leaves offensive material, We'll give you space to publish and let the world see your work. From time to time, I'll also ask a poet to be a special guest on the podcast. So just let me know events or special dates that are coming up in the world of poetry, and I'll try and help to publicize them. Let's create a vibrant community full of good reading and good listening. The next episode features Graham Ryan who's been in the Taunton-based Fire River Poets now for 20 years. He's been published extensively, and he's also won significant competitions. He's a great listener. So join us next time. Register so you'll find out when it's coming. Spread the word about Barred Window. Remember, it's a free site. And let's hope that poetry thrives. Thanks for your time.